Welcome to this season of the Unfinished Business Podcast. Over the next few weeks and months, I'll be discussing art directing for the web with my guests, who are some of the most experienced art directors and designers working on the web today. I'm your host, Andy Clark, and I'm writing a hard-boiled web design book about art directing for the web. And you can find out more about that at stuffandnonsense.co.uk slash books. Now, this season of Unfinished Business is proudly sponsored by Coffee Cup Software, and in particular, their new CSS Grid Builder. If you're the type of designer or developer that likes tools to do their dirty work for them, CSS Grid Builder might just be the thing for you. Now, you might have used what you see is what you get editors before, so you're probably remembering just how lousy the code they spat out was. But let me stop you there. CSS Grid Builder outputs excellent code. Browsers developer tools are getting better at inspecting grids, but CSS Grid Builder helps you build them, obviously. At its core, CSS Grid Builder is a Chromium-based browser that's wrapped in a user interface, so it runs on Mac OS and Windows. This means that if the browser can render it, CSS Grid Builder can write it. In fact, CSS Grid Builder builds more than just grids, and you can use it to create styles for backgrounds, including gradients, which is really handy, borders, typography. It even handles Flexbox and multi-column layouts. But designing a grid is the app's biggest draw, because when you're new to CSS Grid, visualizing how its columns and rows combine to form a layout can be one of the hardest parts of learning how it works. You create a grid, use sliders to preview the results at various breakpoints, and if you're one of those people who's worried about other people using incapable browsers, CSS Grid Builder also offers settings where you can configure fallbacks. Then just copy and paste CSS styles into somewhere else in your project, or you can export the whole kit and caboodle. Best of all, CSS Grid Builder is currently free. Yes, you heard that right. It's free while Coffee Cup Software develop it. And if you like what they're doing, you can throw the few dollars their way to help fund its development. You can find out more and download CSS Grid Builder at cssgrid.cc. On with the show. So joining me on this week's show is David Slate. Now, what is your job title today? Today, I am the design director at a newsroom called ProPublica here in the States. For those who aren't familiar with us, we're a nonprofit investigative journalism newsroom. We do stories in the public interest, uh, stuff that we refer to as stories with moral force. Been around for actually about a decade this year, and I've been there for almost half of it, coming up on four years now. It's interesting, isn't it, what people kind of call, I don't know whether we'd say senior level design roles. You know, whether, you know, we talk about maybe the difference between being like a head of design or a, a creative director mm -hmm. or, you know, a design director. I wonder what the difference is between, if there indeed there is one, between like a creative director or a design director. Is there one? What's the difference between creative and design? I don't know. It's actually, it's really relevant to what I do because when I first joined there, I was literally the first one when they started. It was a smaller organization and one day they decided, hey, we want to uh, get somebody in charge of doing editorial design and platform design. And there was a discussion about, well, what do we call you? And at one point, we actually just were batting around the idea, maybe I would be the design editor because I'm part of the senior editor group because we sort of, we set things up so that 
we want to be participating in how stories come together and we want it to be tied very closely to that. And so it was maybe we identify it so that it's much more explicitly clear to people that it's an editorial role. Creative director, I see that in a lot of product shops. Art director, you see that in places. And in New York, which is a very like marketing town, you see that in a lot of marketing shops. So we just sort of landed on design director as the one that we thought was the the best overall one. But it was it was definitely a conversation of like, what do we call this new thing? I wonder whether the difference is more that perhaps a creative director is more concerned about the I don't know, maybe I'm wrong or maybe I'm right, but maybe concerned more about the kind of the creative aspects of it, you know, messaging and, you know, overall kind of brand communication. Whereas somebody that is involved in sort of a design role or a role with design in the title is more about possibly kind of leading teams. I think that's probably right. I think creative director generally for a lot of startups is somebody who might actually be more product design, more business design. I mean, I just kind of do whatever I think is right, to be honest. I don't. I really don't let the title sort of stop me from... Uh, I participate in a little bit of product. I participate in platform, stories, the whole thing. But I think you're more apt to see creative directors at, at product-y type shops that might have strategy stuff or like business process stuff. And in my case, you know, there's the notion of whatever people think of as design. So, it explicitly says design. It doesn't necessarily say like creative officer or something like that, which could be I'm the creative officer in charge of uh, accounting practices for this this firm or something like that. How many people have you got working under you now? Oh, right now? Uh, it's always been in flux. When I started, it was one. And I think we're at about six or so people. And it was a shop of about 40 people overall. We've actually grown quite a bit recently. We're now over 100 people overall. So, it's not a bad growth curve. One of which is uh, Rob Weikert, who's the editorial experience designer and a set of producers as well, where the people sort of keep the trains running on time. I can't imagine Rob keeping any train running on time. But <laughs> I'm thinking of his alter ego. Do you think of Windhammer? Is this a... Windhammer. The Windhammer alter ego. I'll put a link in, uh, in the show notes to a Windhammer video. For those that do not know, yes, we have uh, one of the team is a, is a great editorial interactive designer who also happens to have uh, another life that is rather uh, colorful and creative. But uh, he is great. And uh, we've worked on a lot of stuff together. It's been a little bit more than two years for him. And we've cranked out a bunch of stories. We cranked out last year, basically a whole site redesign and a complete replacement of our CMS, all of which he was a, a huge player in. What does Rob's day-to-day design job look like? I mean, I'm very, very interested in this uh, whole subject of collaboration. I mean, I think it's fascinating. Let's 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 wind back a little bit, actually, because uh, something that you said a minute ago kind of stuck in my brain, uh, which is a very dangerous place to be, especially at this time in the morning. <laughs> you talked about sitting on the editorial team. Yeah. And I think that that is... You know, an interesting place to maybe start proper the conversation because I think in the past, or certainly in different areas of design, particularly possibly in digital, there tends to be silos. You know, we'll have, you know, designers and developers or content strategists or, you know, UX designers or interaction designers or whatever that, you know, will quite often work separately. And I'm really interested in the fact that, you know, you're crafting these stories. 
and you as a you know design director are right there on the editorial team presumably sitting alongside people that are you know crafting the words or you know crafting the narrative how does that work what does that look like what tell me the the process from we have this story and and what the process of putting that together looks like yeah it, it works in as messy a way as possible <laughs> I, I kid but it's born in the fact that it was a small shop when it started and it was supposed to be really multidisciplinary so some of the first people to arrive there who did work on the web were uh, what we call these news apps developers who are data journalists, multi-purpose web geeks. You know, they know how to program, they know how to make web pages, they know how to do reporting stuff. So everybody was doing a little bit of everything. When you know, there's only a dozen of you can't have specializations of labor. You you have to span across what might be silos in another place. And so we take that as kind of a virtue that. You know, a designer or a developer should be working on multiple things. And in the case of someone like Rob or, or like my team, I usually talk about it as it's design in three tracks for us because we still carry such a broad mandate that goes from very, very tactical to very strategic. So on the most tactical side is like the daily production. Like we literally are the people who commission photography and illustration to go with daily stories and put them into the CMS. So not only did we design the page, but we're actually the ones who are making the selections about what goes into stories every day. In the middle are what we sort of call enterprise stories or big feature stories, which is where you apply a lot of the most custom art direction. And then all the way on the most strategic side is the site itself, the design uh, UX art direction of the site itself. And the way it works for someone like Rob is that I we tend to keep the team member in two of those tracks at any given time. You know, three is too many things. You sort of subdivide your brain until you go crazy. But the idea that you would spend like two thirds or maybe half your time working on the site, and then I'll switch you out for a little while and you'll work on like a big story for a bit. Keeps you fresh, takes a different angle on things. You learn different technical skills. You have a different angle on it. And then you flip back over or you straddle it a little bit at the same time. And Again, that comes out of some necessity, but also that we we want people to be exposed to multiple parts of it. So like when we went to redo our CMS, rather than like take an outside perspective on it, like I knew a lot of what we needed for the CMS because I'm sitting right next to the producers who actually flip the buttons and hit the switches and do everything. So I know where all the pain points are. And I know from the strategic side as a design director, like what outcome I want to see. So we were able to you know, our discovery phase for that was really, really compressed. We, we knew our list like right off the bat. But bringing it back to your like, how does it work? Where does it come from? It's literally a, it's what you said. It's a, we, hey, we, hey, we have a story. So there's a small group of senior editors and I'm, I'm part of that team. And, you know, I just have coffee with them. I, I talk to them. I see them every day. We, we talk online and they let me know, hey, so-and-so is working on something or, or has this idea. You know, this could be really interesting or an unusual story. Maybe there's an opportunity here for something unorthodox in how we present it. Or maybe there's something we need to keep in mind when we go report it out that like maybe we need something for photography. Maybe we need something for illustration or interactivity or data or audio or something like that. And we talk with them throughout that whole process and see which way it's going to turn. That's really interesting. One of the things that you sort of, you know, you mentioned there was about there are these particular kind of, I don't know what we really call them, um, kind of like headline stories mm -hmm. or hero stories or yep. something like that. How do you make the distinction between that and something which is every day? 
So meaning like how do editors identify like this is a quote unquote big story? You know, when when does the cigar chomping editor kind of lean across the table and you're like, this is going to be big, kid. You got to make this one big. Uh, or, or is it just how do we signal that when we design it? Do you have somebody like J. Jonah Jameson? <laughs> no, no, we do have. We have a terrific editor in chief and managing editor and, and, a, and a whole set of senior editors. I, we have colorful characters. I can't say we have anyone that colorful, but we definitely have discussions about Hey, this is, uh, you know, there's about a dozen to maybe 15, sometimes even 20 stories a year. We're like, well, you know, this is, this is big. This is something new. This is something important. We need, uh, we need you to do something with this in terms of design that's going to signal to the audience in really clear terms. This is something they need to sit up and pay attention to. Now, that's a really interesting point because I think that that cuts across what many companies, you know, even outside of editorial. Mm-hmm. should consider there's a sort of a, a running joke i think isn't there about kind of corporate blogs <laughs> and uh, and it's where kind of press releases go to die yeah the last comment was 2007 i think that this kind of these conversations about whether something is a is a big story you know, not just like, you know, we bought a new van. <laughs> I would love that we would have a van. It'd be sort of like the mystery, uh, uh, what's the one from Scooby-Doo? We just drive around and Scooby-Doo, investigate the things. Scooby-Doo, mystery, the mystery machine. Yep, exactly. Yeah, now that would be fabulous. Would you be Shaggy or would you be Scooby? I don't know. I just like the idea that we would have a talking dog. That would be great. I'd be super into that. Our friend Brad Frost, I think, has a talking dog. <laughs> That's pretty talented. Ziggy, right? I think I, I Yes, think I Ziggy. Yeah, Ziggy the talking dog. He actually speaks with a Queen's accent. <laughs> anyway, we digress slightly. What a professional podcast this is. Yeah, it works. We, we, totally get, works. On, we get onto Scooby-Doo and then my mind goes completely blank. I, all I've got in my head right now is, you know, I'd have got away from with this if it wasn't for you meddling kids. Well, there's actually, I mean, there's a lot of stories we have that could end that way. It's like we would have gotten away with this if weren't for you meddling investigative journalists. Like we, we just, if I could rip a mask off of somebody at the end of a story, that might be a life goal for us. That's actually a really, really good way of putting it. <laughs> so you've identified that, hang on, this is going to be a big story. Mm-hmm. So Typically, when there is a big story, I'm thinking of the one that you published a couple of years ago about El Chapo. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was one of the kind of examples that always kind of sticks in my mind. How long does a story like that take, you know, from kind of conception to publication? It really depends. So I believe the one you're talking about is the so Devils in the DEA. That was a David Epstein story. And it's probably standout features we had a UK illustrator, Tim McDonough, who's fabulously talented, just give us some really bonkers opening art for that one. As far as how long they take, that's actually something that's kind of special to us. The reason that we're a nonprofit, the reason we exist is this idea to sort of preserve investigative journalism in newsrooms in the US. I don't know if you've noticed, journalism is kind of having a hard time uh, with, with advertising and the internet. And one of the first things that usually goes away is investigative journalism because it's usually very long-term stuff. You need to gather a lot of information to do this work. You need to literally investigate stuff. I think that story, I mean, we're talking, it's multiple months. We've had stories that have taken multiple years to do. So that is why we are a nonprofit. It is, you know, we gathered up fundraising to support this because that's really tough to do in an ad supported environment of like, well, you got one 
reporter or a couple of reporters working on something and they're not going to produce a story for eight months. That's kind of scary for most places. It also means that we have a really ripe opportunity to do great art direction on pieces because they're, they're there. Uh, they're hanging around. They're, they're cooking. We, we know about them. You know, it's funny, even there, you, know, you, you always want more time than what you, you wind up having. It's no matter what in a newsroom, somehow it always feels like a little bit of a rush at the end. You're like, wait a minute, what, what, what's happening? We worked on this for 12 months. What's going on here? But we still have time leading up to it to go like, you know, we talked to David, who was the reporter on that, and he was giving us details of the story. And, you know, most of them were like, holy jeepers, this is guns and shootouts and just crazy shit. And it's completely serious shit, but it's just off the wall. I mean, they're they're melting people in barrels of acid. They're having shootouts at airports. It was one of those like, well, are you going to, are you, what part of your story are you going to elevate? Is that coming out of it? And he's like, yes, this, this is an insane thing. And I need to show that it's this insane world. I'm like, okay, we're going to get you insane art. Like we're going to get you something a couple clicks over the top. Um, it's just going to reach out and grab somebody by the lapels and go, this is this is a bonkers thing. It's outrageous. It's crazy. And you get the tone right off the bat with, with something as simple as a well-matched illustration for the piece. At what point do those conversations happen? You know, on a scale of kind of like, you know, one being the beginning and 10 being the, you know, right, we're going to hit publish. At what point do you start having those conversations about what elements of a story get to be elevated? I'm going to say, like, ideally, it's like two or three. We've done all of the above. We've known art direction almost from the moment of conception of a story all the way to the other end, which is like, whoa, hey, it's it's almost fully baked and put things together. And some of that is because uh, when you do the long-term story writing and reporting, the stories take different turns. You wind up sometimes with something at the end that you didn't expect. It's it just not what you thought it was. And it like, hey, it turns out like, you know, the villain is over in this corner, not over there, or there's five of them. Uh, we didn't expect that. It's not the story I want. Or the story's turned into three stories, or it's it's something else entirely. So, that's why we have to stay in touch with them. Ideally, it's in that two to three range because we want to give the reporter where everything kind of starts from, you know, a couple beats to sort of survey their own landscape and tell us if there's anything there, uh, which we call, you know, the slang for that is like they're out gathering string. Like they're out looking around, they're getting records, they're seeing like they have a notion, they have a lead, they have a thing. Is it, is it really there? And we sort of say like, okay, well, keep this in mind. You know, this might be good if you do this, but just tell us, you know, come back in a week or two. Like, is, is there anything there? And that's when we really, really start to try to get rolling. We try to like make assignments for, for art. We, we try to think like, is there going to be an opportunity for this to be an interactive thing? But that's, that's where we want to be ideally. But we, we can do, we're a full service shop. We can, do, we can do any point on the spectrum really. So what does that process of collaboration look like practically? I'm thinking of the design process. Mm. You know, obviously you have your CMS, so there are certain limitations to mm. a small or large extent. I don't know what CMS you chose, but presumably you designed it with the kind of uh, flexibility in mind to be able to, you know, break out of the confines when you needed to. Yeah. What does the process look like? I mean, does somebody like, we'll keep referring to Rob, even though he's in the room. It might have been more polite <laughs> if I'd have actually invited Rob on the show. That would have been, uh, I may well do that with your permission over the next few weeks. <laughs> 
All right, I got to go send a memo to Rob now. <clears throat> okay, here yes. we go. <laughs> now, now that now that I know that you have a recording studio in the office, yes. But what does that process look like? You know, does somebody literally sit down there, you know, with with sketches and with pieces of paper and scissors and large sharpies and sketch this thing out how do you evolve the idea for the art direction for us everything starts as words it's a lot of email and a lot of talking we're also kind of known for our uh our length <laughs> and so there is a running gag that a propublica is a unit of measure that means five thousand words or more we do the long form a lot so when you work with people like that, uh, they write a lot and that actually carries over to how they communicate. So we, we send a lot of email, we do a lot of description, we do a lot of one-on-one -on -one meetings where we're just trying to suss out tone and opportunities just by talking to people. Like, I know this sounds like a really interesting story. Tell me more about it. It's sort of like, that's sort of our role as like group psychologist. Like, tell me what you're thinking about this story. Like when we have time, it's definitely, you know, it's, Actually, the classic design process of like, open your paper notebook and start sketching some stuff out if you're thinking about layout. Like, okay, here's what I think, here's what I think our opener might look like. Here's a couple things I'm thinking about. Here's a couple screenshots from some things that might be similar to it. And just following that down to the path. Um, most of our mock-ups, we don't do as many actually as I would like, um, just because we're doing a lot of stories. So, we generally go from sketching to code pretty quickly. Now, that's interesting. Is it the designers that know how to code? I know this is an old conversation that everybody, you know, has gone round and round and round oh, on, yeah. but, you know. Can we have this bar fight? I totally want to have this bar fight. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. Let's have this bar fight. Okay. Okay. This is, yes. Um, our designers code. Absolutely. 100%. And given what I said, too, about being a small shop, like, we, we can't afford to have folks who, I guess the joking term that I use is basically you have to you have to kill what you eat or vice versa here. Like, so Rob is, you know, since we're, we've referenced Rob a couple of times, I, wherever he is right now, his ears are really burning, but you know, he's a brilliant uh, front end CSS uh, web standards coder. So when he does a layout, he is also the one to implement it. And as much as possible, that's what we want people doing. That's what we want our developers uh, doing our, our news apps folks and our designers. So I can see there's opportunities for, for some designers who don't, but the versatility of it, we have to have it in our shop. I'm covering the microphone because uh, you said that earlier on that you were going to battle apartment noise. But it sounds like that there is actually a real bar fight outside my window, but it turns <laughs> out to be the uh, it turns out to be the refuse collectors who are emptying recycling bins full of bottles. <laughs> <laughs> so, that or they get started really early there. <laughs> apologies to the listeners if they think that uh, somebody's uh, throwing bottles in the background of this podcast, but uh, that just adds, it just adds to the authenticity. I thought you had really good Foley. That's, that's, it was like, wow, that's great. It's got like the, yeah. you know, the sound effects board going on. I, I don't know. It's funny because in my own little world, I don't know that saying that is actually controversial. I know that sometimes like you can sort of set your watch by the 18 month cycle of somebody will write a blog post about saying designers absolutely should or absolutely shouldn't code. And then Twitter will explode. I know where I come down on it. It's just, you know, we, we need that sort of versatility. And occasionally there would be opportunities for folks who, who don't. But, you know, we are of the web and the web, you know, code is our paintbrush to a mm. certain extent. Well, these stories are likely to evolve 
right up until the last minute, I would imagine, you know, right up until the point when you press publish. Oh, yeah. You know, some somebody is always, you know, crafting words. And in a process like yours, where certain things will have to be commissioned in advance, you know, if we're looking at original photography or we're looking at original illustration, you know, once those things are delivered, they're kind of pretty much set in stone. And the layout decisions that you might make or the way in which you draw certain, you know, elements of a story out to elevate them, maximize them. That is also something which kind of, I would assume, has to be kind of locked in fairly early in a journey. So I'm wondering about this kind of relationship between designers and editorial or writers. And, you know, at what point... If you design something that's going to run to, I don't know, 10,000 words, and then it runs to 20,000 words using a ridiculous example, <laughs> how does that relationship work? How do you, in a design process, how do you kind of accommodate that? Well, I mean, this is the $64 million question for newsrooms, for sure, for doing design. I'm laughing because we have one of the first major story assignments I did at ProPublica, this Firestone and the Warlord thing, was a 20,000-word story. It was a novella-length uh, story, and it was we were doing stuff on that up, right up until like the morning of... I have photos of like three in the morning of us there with the editor uh, just hammering away at the last bits of it. It's a combination. So we generally tell people like the more complex, the more custom fitted, the more like hand and glove the art or the interactive is going to work, the more lead time we must have. But on the other side, I sort of talk out of both sides of my mouth here because I, I tell them that, but the tools that we develop, we try to make them as flexible as possible. So, you know, our CMS and the custom story rig that we built for it you know, we set that up to make it, you know, it's not completely pain-free, but as painless as possible to make fast changes to things. And trying to make tools that accommodate iterative uh, story design, you know, will also accommodate edits, sometimes minor, sometimes major. And then you sort of get a little bit adept at the sleight of hand of judging. Like I can think of two stories right now, two different story meetings that I just had like 48 hours ago, uh, back to back. And one, you know, I know the course for the story is, is pretty set. The reporter knows it. They're far down the path. They can get the material. They know it cold. It's not really going to be filled with, with too many surprises. And, and that one, you can sort of commission like even the photography. Like I know exactly where, where the puck is going on that one. They can be right there and like it's low risk. The other one right after it was on the other end of the spectrum. It was we don't know. We don't think we can get this. This is going to be really difficult. Like the direction of it, the tone, whether it's going to be two stories or one, like there's, you know, combative participants in it. And how is that going to be? So, in terms of like putting the art direction hat on that, I was like, okay, well, you know, this is going to be metaphorical and abstract illustrations. You're going to need to tell us more about tone than specific incidents. It's less about like getting the photo of the particular victim or perp or depicting specific scene than it is like, give me items from the story that are evocative of its theme and I will give you the most wiggle room to write this like up until the last minute because you won't be making me spike in illustration. I like that phrase evocative of the theme because there's a, I imagine that a very large percentage of the six people that are listening to this podcast right now Oh, hello to all six of you. Yeah, <laughs> all six of them. I can uh, I can name them on on 
just under two hands. <laughs> My mother, your mother. Oh, yeah. Rob Waker, that's three. <laughs> Rob's definitely not listening. <laughs> the person that's editing this podcast, that's four. And then some random guy from Bolivia. We, we totally, uh, yeah. And, and we, your editor needs to, we need to send them a baked ham as a thank you. That, that's a... <laughs> yes. Yes. And he's listened twice. So he counts as two people. There's a good deal, a very large percentage of people that are listening to this show that will be thinking, this is really interesting, but I don't work in a newsroom. Yeah. You know, I work in a corporate where, you know, we publish you know, information about the products or, you know, maybe they work in a software company, for example, and, you know, they need to tell stories about their users and the benefits of the, you know, the products that they're making. They're, you know, they're working in, in a very different kind of area of the yeah. industry to, you know, to what you do. So I'm wondering about this, this kind of process of collaboration, because, you know, I'm thinking of some of the, the places that, you know, I've had experience of, of working with where these kind of almost like editorial conversations don't necessarily happen. For example, you know, a marketing lead might have said, right, you know, our theme for this coming month is going to be, I don't know, productivity, which sounds very boring and probably is. <laughs> <laughs> I like being productive sometimes. But there are ways in which you can make a story even if it's a story about, you know, a user of a product and how it's made them more productive, there are ways in which that you can make that much more engaging by, as you said before, kind of elevating the, you know, the meaning of the of what you're trying to convey. I wonder about whether or not those kind of editorial style discussions happen typically inside that scenario. I, I don't know whether they do. I think they probably don't happen very often, but I can think the hallmark of it would be like if I was going to go back into, you know, I was a consultant for, for a lot of years and if I was going to go back to doing product stuff, I would definitely ask more often, what do you want somebody to feel as opposed to what do you want this page to say? Because there's this strange literalism that spills out of it. And I think I, I do feel bad because you know, editorial design has had a resurgence in art direction, but I don't think that that has happened as much on the product side because people think, oh, it's like less obvious and it's easier for me to get a big hero image of a laughing businessman eating a salad kind of thing. Is that, that's what we all have in our mind, right? The cliche of like, look, it's happy people having a meeting. Ethnically diverse people enjoying a spreadsheet. Yeah. Which, you know, scenes you are not likely to see. <laughs> and so... That weird, weird pat literalism follows from it, and it's because they're like, oh, we wanted to say this, we wanted to say it's productive. It's like, well, what do you how do you want them to feel like they're that? Like, there's other ways to do that. There's there's exercises in abstract thematic thinking that probably don't happen as often inside of well any shop for that matter, including editorial. You know, I'll give you a really interesting example that I don't know is quite working just yet. Dropbox. Have, have, has anybody noticed this? Like they, they picked up like editorial illustrations in Dropbox. They have this sort of weird dissonant transition going on from, from being like, here's a straight ahead webby product, very, you know, Silicon Valley. And it's picking up these sort of interesting paper cut. Like it's starting to pick up a kind of personality. It hasn't fully transitioned just yet, but there, there's an example of 
Like they're actually trying to art direct a platform, quote unquote. And it's interesting. Well, that's very, very interesting because that is actually some of the work that you know that I'm doing right now. But I'm I'm thinking back to you know to some of the kind of common things that go out of something like a product company, and particularly in the context of marketing, where you know really we want people to feel a certain way in order to get them to you know. Press the button. So, if you think about, for example, a landing page that comes from an email campaign, you know something lands in your inbox, and you think, "Ah, right, okay, this is worthy of my click." And then, when they land on, you know, the website landing page that you know involves four hundred tracking scripts, so that we know what people are doing. That to me is a perfect opportunity to direct how somebody feels so that we can more effectively kind of, you know, draw them down towards the call to action, you know, download the software, download the ebook, sign up for the free trial or whatever that thing needs to be. And I think that those kind of areas are absolutely ripe for good art direction. That's interesting too, because it also highlights the other thing that despite the fact that you know, a lot of people listening to this are probably web designers. I think that we still approach art direction as like a one-dimensional thing. And on the web, it's also like we have the element of time and interaction. And so, like, how do things unfold? How do they reveal themselves? Like, that's really relevant to a product. And that's actually should be considered part of like directing the experience and directing the art direction as opposed to thinking in terms of static layout. We still... We still don't have really great tools for doing this. Like there's some prototyping tools and there's stuff we do in code and there's stuff we do to try to like ape or, or demonstrate it. And that also includes like, you know, a terribly dry term to describe a wonderful thing, like a user flow. Like how does somebody get around inside of your product, inside of your, your house, your site, your articles, your whatever it is you're building online because there's more than one moment in it. That aspect of time, I think, is really fascinating. I did a talk ooh, a good few years ago now, which was kind of inspired by Scott McCloud. Mm. If anybody's not read uh, Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud, you should just get on to go to your favorite bookstore, preferably a real world bookstore, and, uh, and go and dig this book out. But the whole kind of premise of this talk was about pace and about how you would slow people down and speed people up at various moments to kind of, you know, enhance that aspect of the narrative. Even if it was, you know, done very, very literally, as comic books do with kind of, uh, you know, panel size, for example, or repetition of shapes, just to kind of create that, that rhythm. And, you know, but that's still very one dimensional. You know, that's still thinking about, you know, flat pixels on a screen. This idea of unfolding a message, I'm going to stop calling them stories because I think that that, that could actually be, you know, quite a, I don't know, a divisive term for a lot of people. They think, oh, well, I don't tell stories, but in fact, everybody does. But that aspect of kind of, time and interaction and the unfolding of a story, possibly across different media, 
you know, how you kind of tell that story or how that story, or I've said bloody story now. <laughs> <laughs> Seven times. It's funny that that particular word, when I got to the current gig, bothered me for a little bit because I'm like, I'm in a newsroom, I'm in this great investigative journalism thing. And they, the term there is we refer to them as stories. And I was like, no, they're articles. Like, you know, the stories are things you, you like, you tell people, you make up that, oh, wait a minute, that's something you tell someone. And that was the beginning of like accepting the term of going like, all right, this is something that unfolds over, over the experience of reading it or interacting with it. And I kind of accepted it. But I would definitely, coming in from the outside, it was a like, what? You call them, they're not articles, they're not entries, they're what? They're stories? Okay. And then realizing that that sort of brought a little bit more depth to it and a little bit more of an implication about what they're supposed to be and do. So, I learned to embrace it. <laughs> this aspect of... Oh, here we go. Storytelling yeah. across different media. When I think about the different channels that people will engage with a brand on, for example, or a publication, you know, it's, it's going to be everything from kind of social media posts through to potentially you've subscribed to the newsletter, uh, the email newsletter, or you, you know, you then go on the web. And even, even um, you know, to the extent of kind of, you know, video within that, those kind of channels as well. There's a lot of very kind of different skills, different experience involved in all of those areas, you know, to make the social post effective or to make the email clickable or whatever. So I'm fascinated by this kind of idea of collaboration and how art direction can sort of sit almost in the middle of that team just to make sure that the message doesn't get lost in the gaps when people move from one thing to the next. Well, I definitely have. I mean, I can think of a couple of examples from, you know, my own work in my own newsroom. The one that I can think of that's sort of like our A number one example was uh, a story that we did. It's, oh God, it's now two years ago, I think. It actually uh, won the Pulitzer that year. It's it was, it's a fairly serious story. Uh, it was called An Unbelievable Story of Rape. And uh, we co-published it with The Marshall Project, which was another, it's a criminal justice nonprofit newsroom here in New York. And art direction played a huge, huge role in how that story came together and was structured even though, you know, looking at it, it doesn't do, it doesn't call attention to itself in a huge way. The way the story unfolded was that there were two reporters on it. There was one in our newsroom and one at theirs. And the story is, is this woman was assaulted by this, this criminal and she went to the police. They convinced her that she had made up her story and they socked her with, uh, you know, criminal charges and years later, somebody else investigating assaults in another state managed to track down this guy who was, was assaulting women. And when they finally arrested him, they found photos of the original victim that he had taken when he had assaulted her. So, it turns out, you know, she was telling the truth all along. And their reporter happened upon the story with the victim in Washington state. And our reporter happened upon it with the police in another state. And literally at one moment, they said, you know, he's calling like a cop or something to say, you know, hey, I want to ask you some questions about the story. And they're like, I don't know why you want to talk to me about this. The reporter, that, that other reporter at that other newsroom just talked to me about it. And, you know, it's the classic newsroom moment of you know, slam down the receiver and go like, holy shit, you know, someone's scooping me on my story. But because we're both like nonprofits and we want to collaborate, we actually, we called them up and said, hey, 
rather than competing on this, why don't we just go in together on this? Like you've got a great angle over there and you've got one over there. And so we decided to throw in together on the story with like two reporters and both design groups. Uh, it was Gabe Dance and Andy Ross back over at Marshall Project. Me and Rob on our side and Lisa Iaboni was one of their, their art directors. And we had this problem like right off the bat, which is two different reporters were already really far down the line of reporting out and writing the story in their own style. And we actually had a meeting where we're like, well, you know, the first thing that most newspapers would do is they take both your drafts, mash them together into one edit and like obliterate the voice differences between you. And I sort of said, well, hey, wait a minute, why don't we just embrace that? Why don't we art direct the story so that it is told in two parts or in turns from two perspectives? So, the one reporter covering the cops, you'll tell your narrative and we will alternate between that and the narrative of the victim and we will literally art direct them in different ways. So, when you're you are with the victim and talking to her about her world, it's literally all figurative illustrations. And when you are on the cop side, it is all evidentiary photography. That was a case where art direction literally set the editorial structure for the piece. And it was all done through collaboration with, with the reporters and across two different newsrooms who were sharing like a, a repo and GitHub for, for pulling this all together. And, and that's, that is a case where literally art direction went so far as to actually set storytelling structure and further it. So that's, that's like my A number one you know, textbook example of when it really works well. I think we've actually maybe even talked about this story on a previous edition of this podcast. No, damn, I've repeated myself. <laughs> well, no, it is the kind of, you know, A number one example that a lot of people cite because of the, you know, the nature of the story itself, but because of how well that collaboration worked. The way in which that story was presented adds a huge amount of weight to the feeling that people take away, you know, when they read it, even down to, I think I'm right in thinking that, you know, from the, the victim's point of view, that story was always told through illustration, whereas from the police side of things, it was always told through photography. So that is a very kind of almost everything that we think about in ter- or I think about in terms of encapsulating art direction in stories of that kind of nature is evident in that post. It's evident in that story. Yeah. I mean, I, I like to cite it um, not to like toot our own horn or anything, only because I think sometimes our direction doesn't get a seat at the table because people would think of it, I mean, in, in newsrooms as like window dressing. And that's actually evidence of like, we actually edited a story through our direction, which is just not how a lot of people probably from the outside think about it of like, oh, well, you put some some pretty pictures on it and you do some things. It's like, no, it can be much, much more than that and much more effective and deeper. I mean, this really is the nub of it. And I think if I was to kind of, you know, try to summarize this portion of our conversation, it would be that whether we want to call them art directors or creative directors or or whatever, it's about having somebody who is thinking about the essence of the story. They're thinking about how the organization wants somebody to feel, you know, revulsion or horror or whatever it might be when they read this story. And that person having not just a seat at the table, but being almost pivotal in the 
team that kind of puts that story together. And that's I don't think that that's something that necessarily happens across, you know, other well, it may not happen in, in in other kind of web newsrooms, at least not every day. And I certainly don't think that it, it's the case in a lot of uh, you know a lot of organisations. Yeah, I think, and and that's like I would. <laughs> this is where I sort of you know pat myself on the shoulder and just say that like that's where we think when things work at their best for us. That's one of the things we think that sets us apart, and one of the things that we try to. We talk to other newsrooms. We try to impart as well. It's like, hey, there's this way of doing things that's actually really great, and and anyone can do it. And you know, if you have predispositions or biases against it, like you should really reevaluate it because it can do this amazing thing for you. I, the one, you know, it's funny. I I used to I worked in newsrooms before ProPublica. Then I sort of left. I became a consultant, and I sort of said, ah, I'm never going back to a newsroom. And when they came to me, one of the reasons I was like, I'm definitely going back to a newsroom was I was really struck by the other editors were all, they all knew this sort of intuitively. They knew that it could make stories work better. They were eager to do that. There was no like fighting to get a quote unquote seat at the table as a designer. So I knew that the place was, was special in that way. And it's not as common as any of us would like it to be or know, like we all know it could be extremely effective. But it's it's tough and something that hopefully, you know, folks like yourself writing writing books and, and doing these podcasts can help teach people that it's an incredibly useful tool. It's not just window dressing. You and I were laughing before we hit record on this episode oh, yeah. <laughs> about the wiggly worm in yes. Skype. I mean, first of all, Skype changes its design probably more often than you publish articles or you publish stories. <laughs> Every time I open Skype, I have to hunt around to try to find the furniture. But in this particular case, and I don't know, maybe maybe it's been there for a while. I don't know. Maybe I just haven't noticed it because I've been trying to find the record button. But there's a wiggly worm. When you type something, yeah. I can see that you type something. And I can see that you're typing something because there's like a wiggly blue worm. Is that art direction? I would say yes. Now, the question is, who is it for? What's it supposed to say? Is it effective? Like, those are all open-ended things. I mean, maybe it's extremely effective because we're totally talking about it. And, you know, did it surprise and delight? Did it infuriate? Did it confuse the heck out of me? From this side of the the Skype panel too, I I also like, what is that? (laughs) But it's, I'll give it this. It's, they're actually thinking about it. So I don't know whether this was a live example or just a, a concept, but a couple of weeks ago, I saw this login screen being tweeted about a lot. And it was very simple. And I can't remember what the character at the top of the page was now, but I'm going to say it's a bear. And, you know, there's a, an SVG bear at the top of the, the, the login screen. And underneath, there's the, you know, the usual kind of email and password and submit buttons. So as you, I think, as you focused in, as you as you put your cursor into one of those input fields, the bear would, you know, move his eyes down to the, you know, to, to what you're doing. And if you got the password wrong or the email address wrong, as well as the usual kind of, you know, do this again warning, the bear would pull a face, which I thought was a, you know, a very very sweet execution. I need to dig that up again actually i need to ask twitter where i can find that again because it's a great example i think of surprise and delight 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I love those kinds of things because, well, number one, uh, you can start to feel the people who put it together. Somebody cared enough to do that thing, but if they don't overplay their hand, it can be brilliant. Because like most, like crass marketing is everything is at 10. You know, like the bear will leap out of the screen and grab you by your eyeballs and make you click. As opposed to, hey, it's just this thing. Don't worry. People will notice it when they start to engage with it. Or maybe they won't. But the ones who do will find it really, it'll be fun. It'll be clever. It'll be okay. You can, we can play it cool and it'll reveal itself over time and it'll be wonderful. I really appreciate those moments because somebody thought about that, like actually thought. Yeah, I really do need to dig up that example because that would be, that would be a, a really nice kind of talking point for the book. And I suppose the decision about how far you take that depends on design principles. It depends on your kind of your brand values as well. You know, maybe that sort, that sort of thing is not as appropriate when you're logging in to file a tax return. <laughs> or is it? <laughs> or, or is it? Well, no, well, that's a very good question. You know, would I be more likely to want to go through the 480 questions? <laughs> If there was a bear that got progressively happier as I did it. <laughs> but th these are the aspects of, of design and art direction that, that really fascinate me. And what I'm wrestling with is how you really kind of, you know, align that to a brand. And I suppose it comes down to possibly kind of deciding on what that brand personality is. And I suppose it goes along with tone of voice as well. But that's, I think that's where the art comes in. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, and in some ways, I would say that product shops have it a little bit harder uh, than newsrooms do. Because even if a newsroom doesn't really know like its overall, quote unquote, editorial voice or position... You can always focus in on the story itself and like what that particular story has to say as kind of a cheat. Because otherwise, it's really hard. A lot of startups, a lot of product shops to get everybody in a room, get them to focus and get them to be concise and really drag them to the answer of like, who are you? What do you want to say? What do you want to be? What is, what is your voice and, and what is your tone? We can always fall back on, well, this article needs to do this. And, and like, it's clearly, it's clearly crazy or it's clearly very serious. And let's just support this one thing on its own, as opposed to, you know, say you're Skype and you've got a whole design system and like that should be coherent and getting everyone to agree on what that is. That's tough. Can you think of any good examples of art direction in product? Ooh. And I'm, I picked up my phone right now and I'm just kind of flicking through my 1800 home screens. Oh, I'm actually going to do the same because thing. I think that this is of interest to a lot of people. The thing that I can kind of pick up on kind of right now, I suppose, is Slack, mm. which I suppose they've constructed a personality. It's not obvious, you know, that they're not trying too hard necessarily. I'm just, yes, it's, it's a very, very difficult one because it does kind of get into that whole line blurry area of you know well isn't that just interaction design yeah and i it's funny because i sort of abstain from that that argument because i don't find the distinctions terribly useful in some ways which is like it's 
this is where I sort of retreat back to just capital D design. You know, we all are at some level designers. And it's good to have a notion of like what kind of design you're doing. But if it gets so messy or so semantic that it's something that's still inarguably like a good design, like I'm going to accept good design, I, I guess. I, I, maybe I'm like just punting on the, the argument. You know, one, I'm, I'm going to get, I'm totally going to hang myself out here for taking a risk. I would actually say the Twitter app on my phone. It is in that space of interaction design, but like it has a consistently applied uh, graphical style that borders on a little bit of art direction. You know, there are motion elements that are consistent in how they're presented. Now, whether or not you agree with them or you don't, like that's, you know, I, I don't know that I necessarily do, but like it's cohesive in some ways. And, and it might be cohesive in the way that it makes errors and, so, and how it applies some of these things. But I would say that that has what would qualify as, as art direction. Well, here's my final question then, which I think kind of neatly, I hope neatly, you're probably going to tell me that I'm talking out of my hat, but which people often do. I've been thinking very hard about this term art direction, not necessarily so much in terms of what it does or practically how we achieve it. Although, you know, I've been thinking about those things too. But, you know, we started this conversation by talking about, you know, what somebody's job title is. You know, are you an art director? Are you a creative director? Are you a designer? Are you, you know, head of design or whatever that might be? And I'm beginning to wonder whether in the past, an art director would have a, a defined role. And, you know, if we go back before the 1960s, you know, an art director would literally, you know, put the art to a story or an art to an ad, you know, be thrown over the wall from a copywriting department, you know, in Ogilvy and Mather, for example. And that role did change and it became much more about crafting ideas and telling stories visually, both in kind of, you know, advertising and editorial at the same time. And I'm beginning to wonder whether art direction is not a job with a job title, but whether it is something that it's an activity that lots of other people involved in writing and design will do. So an interaction designer who's thinking about what the bear, what the expression on the bear's face is going to be, is performing art direction. That doesn't mean that necessarily they are an art director. Somebody that's choosing illustrations for a corporate brochure is performing art direction but they're not necessarily an art director. Am I, am I talking out of my hat here? This, this is how I'm thinking this is how it works. I think that you have it. I mean, again, we're, we're a smaller shop. So, you know, maybe if someday by the grace of whatever, we get so big that we, we have to have divisions of labor because there's just too much work to do. And you actually hire somebody explicitly like, okay, it's your job to communicate this idea of, of like art direction, that is what you will do all the time. Like, you know, I do it a lot, but I, I do other things too. And maybe we would do that. But in the absence of that, and we're much more like, I think, every other newsroom or every other product shop, 
we are all performing that function if we are doing a lot of the design things that we do. It is, it is a skill for us rather than an explicit job role or title, I, would, I should say. I think you have it. Well, goodness gracious me, that's the <laughs> first time that we've A, either come in exactly on the hour or B, a guest agrees with me. Which is, it doesn't happen very often. Well, that's it. We, we've solved it. We've solved the question of art direction. It happened right now. Uh, listeners, that's it. And, and we're, it's done. We're over. It's, it's all fixed. <laughs> Excellent. Well, listen, I cannot thank you enough for spending an hour talking about this stuff when you could be out there playing in the snow. <laughs> it's either that or I'm shoveling. It's a lot more fun. <laughs> well, listen, thank you, David. This has been fabulous. My pleasure. <laughs>